Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. There was a thudding in my head and a sick, bright feeling behind my eyes as my knee slammed into the coffee table and the crystal fruit bowl smashed to the floor and oranges and apples rolled across the carpet before settling themselves among splinters of glass. John dashed in from the hallway and surveyed every glittering shard. I said, whoops. He stared at me and it was like some kind of liquid washed from him into me. It made my heart thunder. You just heard award-winning author Jenny Downham reading from her latest YA novel, Furious Thing. She's in the studio today, all the way from London, to talk about her new book, as well as the insidious nature of gaslighting and the power of one 15-year-old girl's anger. Jenny is also the author of Unbecoming, You Against Me, and Before I Die, which was made into a movie, Now is Good, starring Dakota Fanning. Hi, Jenny. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for coming by to talk about your latest book, Furious Thing. Tell our listeners about it. Okay. It's the story of 15-year-old Lexi. She's wildly rude, badly behaved, always in trouble. She has a furious temper. She doesn't want to be this person. She wants to be someone who's sweet and amenable and compliant because then she thinks she'll be popular. Um, But despite her best intentions of pushing her fury down, it keeps bubbling up again and again. And I think her anger is a symptom of something wrong in her life. She's letting people know her feelings matter. But her family choose to do what lots of people do with female anger, which is pathologize it. And they take it to the doctor and she's medicalized for being angry. Um, The book is looking at the difficult subject of controlling and coercive behavior, which is also known as gaslighting. And it's a slippery thing to describe. We don't really talk about it much. And it's difficult to see in your own life, almost impossible to see in other people's. And yet it's everywhere. Um, For me, the challenge was writing about something that is so difficult to describe through a protagonist who doesn't really have the language. It's not particularly eloquent. Um, And also to try and get a lot of love and light and some laughter in the book, despite the difficult subject matter. Tell us about Lexi's life, about her family and her stepfather, who might be said to have fury of his own. Well, she lives in what we might call a golden family who are everything she isn't. Um, So she's not academic like the rest of them. She's not um, popular. She doesn't see herself as attractive and they value those things. Um, Her life has changed significantly in the past few years when her mother, who was a single parent, met somebody new. And this soon-to-be stepfather, because there's going to be a marriage coming up, um, has come to live with them. And that's made her relationship with her mother different. It's also made her relationship um, with this man who, when he first walked through the door, she said it was like his smile was like a light shining. Um, He does hot and cold very well, and she doesn't understand 
what it's like to be on the receiving Well, she doesn't understand what it's like to be on the receiving end, but she, she doesn't know it's not appropriate behaviour. Um, and I think that's the thing about gaslighting is that it's insidious. Um, so a lot of the things he does are very subtle behaviours that happen over time. And it's very difficult for her to actually pinpoint it is what he does, but he makes her feel uncomfortable. Um, she feels stupid when he's around. She feels clumsy. She drops things and she doesn't do this with anyone else. Um, and she doesn't do it on purpose. And when she tries to explain it, she doesn't have the language and people don't believe her. It seems that her mother is somewhat sucked in to the situation with the stepfather, that her mother acquiesces much more than Lexi does. Her mother definitely seems like a victim, but it can be so frustrating to watch it play out. I think what's interesting is that people read the book have a very strong reaction to the mother. They often say, well, I really didn't like her. She's a mother. She's supposed to look after her child. And we point the accusing finger at the mother, even though she is, as you've said, um, somebody who is also a victim. And I think that what can happen is that your own sense of judgment becomes eroded. Your own strength becomes eroded. Your ability to see the truth becomes eroded. So she's no longer able to protect her child. So she's part of the same picture. But she is affected very differently. She's silenced by it. She internalizes the anger. Um, she begins to tread eggshells around it, whereas Lexi externalizes it. Yeah, that's so interesting. And it leaves Lexi really almost nowhere to turn, except she does have a stepbrother, Cass, to whom she's very attached. She's in love with him. In, she's in hopelessly, in, hopelessly love in love with hopelessly. him. That was a unique relationship. <laughs> Could you describe that one for our listeners? Well, he's an ally in the sense that he is John's son from another relationship. So these young people come together um, with step-parents who are joined. Um, and so in a sense, their experience over the past seven years has been very similar. But Cass has now left and gone to university and she feels very abandoned. So the book starts with him having just left. So for the first time, she has to face quite a difficult family situation by herself. But one of the things I wanted to look at as well with Cass is that sometimes when we love people, we find it difficult to sometimes see all their behaviours. And I wanted to look at um, what I call the bad boy trope, which is something whereby I think we still do this. We've done it for years. We think that bad boys, um, I think girls and women are sort of trained to think we can change them. Um, oh, they see me. I'm different, will be different. Um, and I think this is often due to the fact that we still bring up girls and boys with different expectations. So girls accept certain behaviours such as hot and cold behaviour or, um, you know, they say they'll ring you and then they don't or they blame you for stuff or don't take responsibility. And it's just as bad for the boys because they're trained to perhaps see certain behaviours as less manly, um, putting your feelings out there, being vulnerable, being empathetic. And that helps nobody. So until we ungender emotions, I think we have a situation. And I was quite interested in examining that through these two. Lexi is experiencing real trauma and there's an air of menace nearly everywhere she turns, but she doesn't back down. What keeps her going? Lexi's very brave and she's very funny. So I hope that the reader feels confident walking beside her that despite the fact she's 15 and a schoolgirl and she's facing some really difficult stuff, that her vitality uh, is something that I hope readers will feel 
empowered by walking beside. Because certainly when I was growing up, there were books I read where I would read about difficult things and they helped me face difficult stuff in real life because I realised I wasn't alone. And I walked next to these protagonists and I watched them stumble over again and get up again. And I felt like I was learning next to them. So I, I hope that would be a wish I had for the book. Absolutely. I I do think that Lexi is such a sympathetic character, despite everything she goes through, and the reader is always rooting for her. How did you create her? <laughs> I'm just curious. Well, I don't plan. So um, I just, I had an idea of a teenager singled out for blame, and I didn't know why, a, a scapegoat, if you like. So I just started writing words at the page just to see what would happen. And the voice that appeared really fascinated me because she's so unlike any of my other protagonists, because She's very reactive. She doesn't think before she does stuff. And it was really fun to follow her around because if we ever got, I know it sounds strange saying we, but I do feel like her and I were kind of walking together. If I got stuck, uh, I'd say, right, now what do we do? And she wouldn't have that kind of, she didn't use her brain in the sense of it wasn't a kind of an intellectual response. She'd be like, I don't know, let's climb out the window or let's smash this. So it was kind of great following her about. Um, and a challenge to have her look at something that was difficult to quantify. Um, but I, I, I think what I love about her is not only is she brave, but also she has a really big heart. So she loves her little sister. She loves her mom. She's hopelessly in love with Cass. Um, and I think that readers, well, I certainly like flawed characters. I mean, who wants to read about somebody perfect? And she has so much growing to do. And also she's chasing the truth. So I think that we empathize with somebody who's really trying to do the right thing, despite what everyone else is telling her. She's following her instinct. And I think that can make her somebody who we want to read about. Iris, her half-sister, is the one who calls Lexi a furious thing or tells her to draw on that furious thing inside her. Lexi realizes then that this rage, it's almost like a superpower. Could you tell us more about the relationship between Lexi and her half-sister, Iris, who's a very precocious six-year-old? Yeah, well, Lexi adores her little sister, would do anything to protect her, and Iris loves Lexi. Um, So it's a great relationship in that sense. In terms of her anger being a tool, I think when the book starts, it's a coping mechanism. So her little sister's watching and Lexi's throwing a chair or shouting. And Iris doesn't necessarily see that as a bad thing because what it does is it distracts. It's a bit like if something's going on on the other side of the room and you drop something over here, everybody looks at you. So it's a distracting technique. And so Iris is often grateful for it because Lexi's taking stuff onto her shoulders. Um, there comes a point actually in the book when Lexi gives up. And I think that's what can happen with controlling coercive behavior is that the victim normalizes it. They think there's nothing I can do. I've got no voice, no strength, no power. I give up. And Lexi literally goes to bed and pulls the covers over her and says, that's it. I give up. And Iris says, well, then I better take charge. Um, and so she tries to do some of the things that her sister has modeled. And of course, her parents are outraged. <laughs> um, but what I think is important about that is there's a difference between anger, which is a coping mechanism, and anger, which is a transitional tool. And ultimately, Lexi does use her anger as a tool to change her situation and her little sister's situation and to name what's happening to her and to seek validation. I'm hopeful that more people feel able and comfortable to make a noise after reading this book because Fury 
of course, can be a challenging thing, but it can also be a very eloquent expression of passion and a transforming force. Exactly. The difference between anger as a destructive force versus as a way to get oneself out of a really dangerous dynamic can be subtle. What do you hope young readers will learn from Lexi and the way she navigates the world? I think that if I had one wish for the book, it would be a reader feels heard um, in the sense that it might be someone has a very similar experience to Lexi and they can feel less alone. It might be that somebody thinks and recognise one or two of these behaviours that are being put upon her um, and therefore it's a red flag. Okay, that's not okay behaviour. Um, so that would be my wish and that a reader then would perhaps be able to voice their own experience and perhaps then seek validation, which is what Lexi does. I think for me as a, as a reader, I like to discover worlds I never would or could or perhaps would want to in real life and be with people that might challenge me in some way. Um, so as I said previously, although it is a difficult subject matter, I'm, I, I hope it's one that's um, attractive to walk through so that by the end of it, you can also have been on a journey. And what I tried to put in there is some, not, not clues because it's not a mystery, but people have said to me when they read it the second time, they were like, oh, I saw it then. Oh, that, I saw it then. And I tried to make it, there are some things the reader gets first before Lexi. There are some things you get at the same time as her. And there are also some things that she gets before you do. And that also felt important because that's part of the way that gaslighting works, that we don't get all of it at once. We realise only afterwards, once we're away from it, what it was. Was there a particular reason you wanted to tell this story now? Controlling a coercive behaviour, also known as gaslighting, I think is a vitally important story, story to tell in these times of fake news, half-truths, as the notion of masculinity is being reassessed. Um, interestingly enough, when I first started writing this book, the law changed in um, England and Wales, and this kind of behaviour became illegal um, in December 2015, and shortly afterwards in Ireland and Scotland, but in almost every other country in the world, including the United States, it's not illegal. Um, so uh, certainly federal law and, and most state law, if you go to the police station and you present the fact that you're in an abusive situation... Um, you need physical injury and in some states you need the threat of physical injury, but that's as good as it gets. Otherwise, you're not protected by the law. And so it felt really important to tackle this. And also as I was writing the story, I'd give chapters to readers, sensible adults, and they'd say, so is it that he doesn't wash up much or is it that he isn't pulling his weight with childcare? What exactly is it that you're talking about? And I think we have such a lack of understanding about exactly what it is. And when this book went out for submission, I got very private letters and emails from people who were the first readers saying, oh, this happened to me. It was my uncle or a family member or an ex-partner. And they were telling me their stories. So I think it's something that we don't talk about much and it's important that we do. So we recognize the signs. Oh, wow. That's marvelous. I know that you began your career as an actor. I did. What drew you to writing, in particular writing for young people? I always wrote, but without serious intent because I chose to act. So I had really sensible career choices, both of them. I think I'll be a pop star next. <laughs> um, so um, acting was a really great apprenticeship for writing. So I was always writing anyway. But um, I worked with a theatre company for seven years whose remit was to take theatre to people who had never seen a play. 
And most of those people were incarcerated. They were in prisons or they were in young offenders institutes. And if a theatre company turned up and said, oh, we've got a play for you, they wouldn't want to watch. So we turned up with nothing. We turned up with no script, um, no props, um, nothing. And we said, we'll do whatever you want. So it was an, an amazing apprenticeship because you've got a live audience in front of you who get bored very quickly if you don't keep them entertained. <laughs> Um, I left the theatre company after seven years because I had my second son and the first one had to go to school. So he'd come out on the road with us. So it was a very pragmatic decision. And I just decided to just tell stories in a different way, not on my feet, but on the page. I mean, it's lonelier because I'm all by myself, <laughs> but um, it's pretty much the same process, really. Oh my gosh. Well, tell us about that process, your writing process. Well, I use lots of the techniques I used to use as an actor. I often um, keep notes as if I was going to play them on the stage. Um, and I often try and inhabit all the different characters because I think if this was a play and I was cast as this character, would I be saying, I'm sorry, I'm not on stage very much or I don't really know what my motivation is. So I try and approach every character as if they're a three-dimensional, full human being with a rooted history. And if I was cast as them, I'd be delighted. Um, so I use those kind of techniques. And I also... Writers often sit down a lot, and so I try and use my feet more. So I might walk about as the character. I might practice their dialogue out loud. I do things like I get massive, massive wallpaper rolls and spread them all over my carpet and all over the table and down the stairs and just draw the story. Um, I work with actors I used to know still, and I say, OK, I've got this problem. This is the skeletal problem I have. Let's walk the story. And so I use techniques that I suppose are perhaps less usual uh, for writers than the most. Those experiences and techniques have certainly come in handy. Furious Thing is a great read. Thank you, Jenny, for sharing such a timely story with us. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much again to Jenny Downham for joining me today. And thank you for listening. To learn more about Furious Thing and Jenny's other titles, check the show notes or go to scholasticreads.com. Special thanks to producer Bridget Benjamin, associate producer Mackenzie Cutrazula, sound engineer Daniel Jordan, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads as we celebrate Scholastic's 100th anniversary year. See you next time.